Hello, my loves. I don't know about you, but I can't believe that we're already on season three of the TRP Recovery Podcast. I can't believe that I just started this podcast back in 2020 and it's grown um, way faster than I thought it would. And most importantly, I'm so, so thankful and proud of the impact that it's having. Um, so a couple changes. Um, if any of you follow me on Instagram, um, you would have seen one of my new videos where I talked about um, the original pronunciation of my name. So um, most of you who know me know that for the longest time, I've referred to myself as Mikkel. Um, and just briefly, because um, if you want the full story, this would be a great opportunity for you to visit my Instagram. Yes, that was a shameless plug. <laughs> but um, just to keep it brief, um, I've always kind of felt pressure to conform and just make my, my name palatable um, for people. Growing up, it was always difficult for people to pronounce my name. And unfortunately... Um, I never really had the confidence to affirm and correct people. Um, so recently I kind of had a revelation that I need to be able to stand true to myself, um, first and foremost, and to be proud of the name that was given to me. And, um, just so you know, the actual pronunciation is Nelkael. So from now on, you will hear me introduce myself as your host, Nelkaya. Um, but yeah, definitely uh, tune in on my Instagram to check out that video and so that we can get a little bit more of a backstory. But for today's episode, the first episode for season three, I am so proud to introduce Megan Chance. Um, Megan is a phenomenal writer and speaker, and um, she's also a former missionary who's super passionate about empowering women and reclaiming feminism for the Christian faith, um, which is something, depending on what circles you're in, kind of seems oxymoronic, but believe it or not, it exists. It definitely does, and it should. She's um, also a blogger and the host of the Faith and Feminism podcast, and she's also a very avid traveler, which is something I'm also trying to do, but, you know, given current circumstances, guys, I don't know how realistic that is, but um, she and her husband, um, they currently live in Georgia, and together they have tried to create a whole movement to really empower and affirm women in their right to to lead and to exist and to be proud of who they are so definitely don't forget to pick up her book women rising once you listen to this um yeah so i hope you have a nice hot cup of tea as you know you should have by now and um let's get started hello megan good morning how are you good morning how are you I guess I didn't I'm answer doing... the question. I'm doing <laughs> a little frazzled. My mic broke. It's fixed. Regardless. It's fine. <laughs> I didn't answer the question. Just now. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Technical difficulties. I mm -hmm. feel like they always wait to the very last minute. Yes. Just like to keep us on our toes. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. I was so happy to start reading your amazing book, Women mm -hmm. Rising. And it's something that's really special to me because it talks about a lot of the issues within the church that I feel a lot of people are really hesitant to talk about. Mm -hmm. And whether that's through like fear of just being shunned or just because it's part of the culture, people just don't discuss it. And I love how you just open the gates without any type of hesitation and fear. <laughs> or I could be wrong. I'm, yeah. I'm sure that it took a lot of courage to do mm -hmm. so, but it's amazing that you did. And so I would love to hear more about your thought process and your experiences and I'm sure my audience will too. Yeah. So I mean I think you're talking, I mean there there are so many things if we're talking about Christian 
culture that I think we're afraid to talk about. And because we know the cost of speaking up, we see, we've seen people who step outside the bounds and how they're treated. And because we have such a strong sense of belonging, like you want to belong, you don't want to be thrown out of our community. It makes sense why we're fearful to speak up. But I think in a lot of faith journeys, there comes a point or there should come a point where the truth is more important than belonging. And for me, that was my journey. And, you know, I went along with all of the rules, even though they felt wrong. So I'm going to speak specifically to patriarchal gender norms and white supremacy in the, in the church, you know, because I am a woman, the patriarchal gender norms I was taught always sat wrong with me. Why, why would God make me less of a being? Why would God make me to be basically led by everyone? Why would God make my body a stumbling block? I had all of those questions forever, but because I knew the cost of asking those questions, I didn't. Um, and when it comes to white supremacy functioning in the church, Honestly, I was blind to a lot of it because my skin is white and I benefited from it. And so um, I didn't ask those questions. And then I grew up in a, a very white place. I grew up in Colorado and in the suburbs of Colorado. So um, people always like say what a great state Colorado is. And it is truly beautiful, but there is very, very little diversity there. And I live in the South now, I live in Georgia, and I'm so grateful for the diversity here. And I think that's what began to open my eyes um, and also doing missions work and traveling and seeing cultures different than my own. But it was through missions work, which is problematic, which we can talk to <laughs> um, at a later point because there is seriously so much to talk about here. But it was through missions work that I started to see a common theme of women's oppression. I thought, mm -hmm. you know, I had grown up in the church. I had struggled with these teachings. I had been a survivor of sexual assault multiple times. I had multiple incidents, incidences where either a stranger or someone I trusted touched my body without my consent. And it was a truly terrifying experience, but because the script I was given was, it's your fault women's bodies are stumbling blocks, men can't control themselves. I thought there must have been something I had done wrong to deserve the sexual assault that I had survived. And so I, it was almost like just the shame I carried, not only was the experience extremely traumatic, but I thought it was my fault. And so I carried so much shame. And so when I traveled the world, I started to see that my story wasn't unique, that my story of sexual assault and being treated differently as a woman and kind of this gender rule script that I should stay home and shut up and submit to men, that this is something that is happening all over the world again and again and again. And a lot of times much more extreme than what I grew up with. And so I encountered female genital mutilation or female, female genital cutting where girls were being having their external genitalia removed um, in order to control their sexuality and the pain and the trauma and the oftentimes the death that came with that, yet it was still this common practice, little girls being denied an education, that they had to fight to get an education and would endure beatings to get any education that they could. The sex trade, I, I encountered women who had been literally kidnapped from their homes and forced into the sex trade, specifically Nepalese women being forced into the sex trade in India. Um, and then I also met women in, in Southeast Asia who uh, whose chains were um, not physical, they weren't physically kidnapped, but left with no options to provide for their children or for their family were um, being sexually exploited because they had no other choices, no other way to survive. And what I saw again and again is how gender scripts, how patriarchy played into this. And it wasn't until um, I was in the Philippines, um, I had been doing, I had been working with um, sexually exploited women, sexually exploited survivors for about five years. And I was leading a trip in the Philippines and I was partnering with this incredible organization called Wipe Every Tear that provides a full college education um, and a safe home and pays for the dependence of women who might want to get out. And so we were there and there was this 
a guy and his friend, American guy, he was about 60, maybe 65, you know, had a big beer belly and kind of looked like a biker. And then his friend next to him was just like young army. I'm pretty sure he was in some kind of army part paraphernalia and super buff, super strong. And these guys asked me why I was there, asked my team why we were there. And we told them, you know, we're here to talk to women. And if they want the opportunity to go to college and stuff, we're just giving them that opportunity um, if they can take it. Because again, like I said, so many of these women are paying, are surviving 10, up to 10 people, up to 10 dependents. So oftentimes it's, it's just really hard to leave. It's not just them they're trying to survive for. It's multiple people. And so we told him and he's like, oh, that's cool. And we're like, why are you here? And he immediately went into this really long tirade about how women here were raised right and they knew how to respect men, that they were submissive and that he liked it and that women in the West didn't know their place. And he continued going on and there's something about this conversation that felt really familiar to me. And at first I couldn't place my hand on it. And then I just had this most profound realization that he was talking just like my pastors had growing up. Men deserve respect, need respect. Women are born to give men that respect. And because I didn't get it in the United States, I am buying it from exploited and vulnerable women here. Mm -hmm. And I, something to me just broke because I had been working with these women who oftentimes just had no other options. And I could see that we might be able to help one woman or she might be able to get the help she needed, but was so quickly replaced by another woman. And I, mm -hmm. and I, there were so many times I felt so frustrated. Like, what are we even doing here? Like, are we making a difference? Are we making it worse? I talk about mm -hmm. all this in the book, all these doubts. And then it hit me that we're not going to make a difference until we address the demand. And this man very clearly told me why he went why why did he go is because he felt as a man he needed respect and he felt that he wasn't getting it and he deserved it and entitlement entitlement and power differentials gender scripts that men need to be in control and that women mm -hmm. must be submissive to that and like I said I had been in the church my whole life and had grown up with these teachings I had submitted to these teachings could I and stop it, you there for a second yeah. and ask you what are some examples perhaps like in the church or more yeah. specifically in the word that is often used to, to make women feel as though, okay, this is something that's actually in the very thing that we believe mm -hmm. in. So therefore you have to submit to it. Something I always yeah. hear is about how with Adam and Eve, because Eve was taken from the rib, you know, and she's considered the helpmate. Therefore, that's what women are supposed to be doing. So how, what were some examples that you heard? Well, that was one of them. Mm -hmm. I heard so many. And there's a lot of taking uh, the teachings of Paul out of context. For example, there's um, a verse, um, I think it's in 2 Timothy. There's, there's, there, I think there's three different ones. There's Ephesians 5, second, one in 2 Timothy, and I think there's one other one. And But one of them says, wives submit to your husband. And in the next verse, it says slaves submit to your master. And so, I mean, don't even get me started. It's so frustrating <laughs> to me, me because like what I hear all the time, Megan, the Bible should be read simply, simply said, it says wives submit to your husband right here. It's so clear. And I'm mm -hmm. like, okay, the next line literally says slaves submit to your master. So mm -hmm. are you okay? Are you okay with slavery? I mean, mm -hmm. this is how slavery was justified exactly. by Christians for centuries. Are you saying it's okay? Oh, so mm -hmm. clearly you are picking and choosing the verses that you want to believe. And also mm -hmm. you're ignoring the fact that Paul, I mean, first of all, there's so much cultural context, which we do not have time to get into. Mm -hmm. There are some really great resources. And one of them I'm going to recommend is The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. Okay. Um, she's a historian that studied that the teachings we have in the Bible are not these, these wives submit to your husband. It's not biblical. It's actually historical. And we can get into that. Mm -hmm. um, but 
she is the expert there. I am not the expert, <laughs> but I can tell you um, that New Testament women and Old Testament women were constantly put in positions of authority and power, um, and that we have women disciples, Junia, Phoebe, uh, Priscilla, all of Mary, the Marys, we're all disciples, but we don't use that language uh, mm -hmm. because men excluded them. And also Bible translations. So for example, Junia, she was a female apostle mm -hmm. and male translators of the Bible changed her name to Junius to fit their, Junius is a male's name, to fit their um, ideas of who should be in power and who shouldn't. And obviously mm -hmm. there's even contradictions within Paul himself, because he says there's no, neither slave nor free woman nor man, you know, all of these things, yet people are choosing these verses to focus on, to protect their own power. And I can also talk to you about like, they're like, oh, well, again, I have these conversations <laughs> a lot. Um, someone, you know, will say, you know, the Bible should be read simply. And so I already disproved some of those things, but then I talked to him about context, that there's an important context here. There are some parts of the Bible where these are letters to specific people at specific time. That means there's a lot of context that we don't know or that we're missing and that we need to study. So an example of this is there's one of, in the Bible, Paul says, can you bring me my cloak? Okay, so this is so clear. <laughs> like, hey, I forgot my cloak at this place. Can you come bring it? Are we supposed to bring everyone, like, are we supposed to be searching for Paul's cloak and bringing it to church? Like, no, because it's a specific time at a specific place. And they want to say, well, context doesn't matter here. It's very clear. But then if we talk about the verse of the rich young ruler, where this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, you know, I followed these teachings. I've done all of these things my whole life. How can I like truly follow you, Jesus? And Jesus mm -hmm. says, okay, there's one thing that's holding me back. Give up, you know, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And yet people aren't going around saying, you know what? Everyone should sell everything and give it to the poor because they clearly understand yeah. context here. They are understanding, the, though these are the words of Jesus Christ himself, that there's a mm -hmm. specific person at a specific time that he's talking to and there's context and what he's saying to that one man doesn't necessarily apply to all of us. And so mm -hmm. I think there's just a lot of misunderstanding. I think the Bible has been taught in a white patriarchal setting to protect power of white mm -hmm. patriarchal men. And, mm -hmm. um, and so that's where we get all of these verses. And so it was in the setting, like, yeah, I grew up with these teachings saying, wives submit to your husband, women were created to serve men, which again, if we're looking at the word azer there, it's azer kignagbo, and that means um, it's the only other time it's used in the Bible is to refer to God, <laughs> and it's a, it's a mighty warrior, someone to, you know, rescue and save, and so clearly it's not this like, I'm going to do your dishes for you, it's like this big, powerful God, and we can also understand my goodness, like some people believe that Adam and Eve was a literal thing and a literal serpent. A lot of mm -hmm. evidence is showing that that's also not a literal story. This is a type of language mm -hmm. to, it's an origin story. It's, it's what, mm -hmm. it's the best of what those people trying to find God had. And so again, we can mm -hmm. even have discussions about that, but I think what I really want to nail down is that people, I think, put divinity, put divinity, which is, I think, a heretical position on the people who wrote the Bible. Those people were very clearly in process, very clearly learning and growing. I can give you an example of this. In John 20, there's the passage where Jesus has died. The disciples are going to the tomb and um, John is writing and he's like, uh, Peter and the other disciple are referring to himself. We're going to go to the tomb to like check up on Jesus. And the other disciple ran much quicker than the other disciples, like beat Peter to the tomb, like totally like a subtle brag about how he runs faster than Peter. Like that did not need to be in scripture, but which I think shows that this guy isn't perfect and constantly Jesus mm -hmm. is correcting his disciples over and over again. Like they're arguing about who's going to be at the right hand of the father. Who's the best. Who's the, whatever these guys need correction. Mm -hmm. And even after Jesus dies, they need correction. And yet we take these words as if it's Jesus himself or God himself speaking when we have a very clear paradigm that these people were not perfect. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying these men weren't good and they didn't have an understanding of God and that we can't learn from them. I'm saying they weren't perfect. And I'm saying 
just like you and I, when we became Christians, we didn't suddenly become fixed. Like this is a process. This is, we have to walk out our salvation. We have to walk out our relationship with God. And, and these men didn't suddenly become perfect when Jesus died. They had to walk it out. And so even the idea that we're taking these words and fighting over them and using them to oppress other people, which by the way, if we read Jesus's teachings over and over and over and over again, he's like, stop using your religion to hurt other people. He talks to the Pharisees, his biggest reprimands were to the Pharisees who, who appeared religious, like they knew everything. Like I pray and I tithe and I'm so good. Um, does that seem familiar? Yes, <laughs> they oppress other people. And it says, you, he says, woe to you Pharisees, you give a 10th of your tithes, but you have neglected what is more important justice and mercy. And so we see this throughout scripture. Jesus is not about tithes. He's not about going to church. He's not about singing praise songs. Go read Isaiah. He's saying, I don't want any of that. What I want is for you to look at your bloody hands and learn to do justice. And so again, I think we have so many misunderstandings. We've been taught the Bible. I was taught the Bible through a white patriarchal lens. I was still mm -hmm. able to find Jesus and encounter Jesus through that. Um, but I knew that if I truly was going to follow Jesus, it was going to cost me my community. And so, like I said, bringing me back to the story, this mm -hmm. guy talked like I was taught. He was saying women were there to respect men and that he was, he deserved respect. And so he was buying trafficked women, women who had no other options abusing their bodies. And by the way, this line of work is extremely dangerous. There's constant violence. It's, degra it's degrading. And I know a woman I personally worked with who was murdered by a client and not, not just killed, but viciously, viciously murdered. And I just, I can't, I can't believe that we can't see that the reason that men are violent or the reason that men are seeking this out, like they literally told me was because they felt like they needed to get the respect they deserved. And so let's talk about this. Let's talk about these teachings because there's lots of books out there, lots of studies out there that show that sexual assault, sexual violence is not a crime of lust as we've been told, right? I was told men can't control themselves because my body is too sexy, which mm -hmm. is just nonsense, nonsense, right? And, and I wore that shame for well over a decade. No, that's not what's causing sexual assault. Sexual assault is men being entitled, think they're entitled to women's bodies and think mm -hmm. they can touch them because they have a sexual urge. They've been told that they're not responsible for their actions. What kind of teachings, like I grew up with a phrase, um, don't show it if it's not on the market, which is literally objectifying me. But who says like, you can touch my face. My face is showing. Do you think you can go grab my face? Of course not. Yet, if it's like a different body part, men are being taught that they're entitled to that. And so there's an excellent researcher. Her name is Lynn Yonak. She's a psychoanalyst and she's been studying sexual assault and what causes it. And it's actually due to power differentials. It's need for the perpetrator's need for dominance and control, which makes sense because women have sexual urges, but we do not see the kind of sexual violence from women. Why, even when it's man, um, even when men are the victims or survivors of sexual assault, it is another man, most often. It's very, very rare for it to be a woman. So what is the cultural conditions that is making perfectly sexual violence come from men? And, and there's studies, there's answers, it's due to power differentials. And so something Lynn Yonak says, though the term is sexual assault, though we're, we're associating sex with it, it's actually just an act of violence. And it's, a, it's, a, it's about the perpetrator's need for dominance and control. And you can look her up. Her name is Lynn Yonak. And just Google sexual assault power differentials. And you're going to, she's not the only one. There's tons of resources out there. So what I realized that night talking to that man it was, it wasn't even like, it, I feel like it was a slow lesson because again and again, I had seen men like him and I had seen the men who had done it to me have similar mindsets of, of, of what they expected of women and how they saw women. But it was that night that I realized I have been complicit by being silent and submissive, by going along with the status quo. I have been complicit in a system that harms women. 
And I have seen too much harm of women. I have survived too much harm myself not to speak up and not to be like, I'm done. I'm done with this. I'm done with this system. And so I quit my job and I thought, I felt this, I don't know what else to call it, but this call from God to get Mm -hmm. my people who were harming people and to see their bloody hands. Like they say they want to fight human trafficking. There's churches who will donate money to human trafficking causes, yet Mm -hmm. they don't see their complicity in the harm of these systems. And so for me, a lot of my unlearning has been unlearning, obviously my complicity in patriarchy, but also white supremacy. Because like I said, I think Mm -hmm. the church historically, and if we look back historically, it has been used as a tool of oppression. This is just simply true. It's been used to justify slavery, Mm -hmm. Jim Crow. Um, Before that, it was used to justify killing what they would call pagans, people who didn't claim to be Christians. There was missions Mm -hmm. that would go to new lands and kill or convert everyone there if they weren't Christian. This is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't think anyone in their right mind would argue that, but people did argue that. And in fact, the United States, there's this whole idea of manifest destiny that Christians were supposed to have all of North America. And it was justified in the Supreme Court that white folks, Christians could take the land from Native Americans legally because Mm -hmm. we were Christian and they were not. And the land was better owned and stewarded by Christians, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And so like, there's like, honestly, so much digging we have to do, but I have to say, like, this is a pretty bleak picture I, I'm painting of the church. And I understand that, but I have to say that mm-hmm. it's also always been the church of the liberated who have always been fighting that. If you look at who was most against slavery, they, it was abolitionists using their faith in Jesus Christ to stand against it. If we look at civil rights heroes, like Martin Luther King Jr., he was a Baptist preacher or was he Baptist? I don't know if he's about this. He was a preacher. He's a pastor. I don't remember his denomination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the denomination, was, yeah. Maybe he was Methodist. I don't know. I should know that. Um, but he was a pastor and he used his faith in Jesus Christ to push against the harm that was done in the name of Jesus Christ. And so for me, mm-hmm. what I felt like I have done and I'm trying to do is to to realize that I was part of the church that harmed others. I was part of the ruler's church, which is a concept also developed by anti-racist activists. I think it was this one specifically comes from James Baldwin that I learned about it from an educator named Rose J. Percy. But this idea of the ruler's church, uh, religion being used to dominate, and then the church of the people, the people's church, which is a church of liberation. And so I feel like my transition is realizing my bloody hands, seeing my complicity and um, and systems that harmed others and deciding to use my faith in Jesus Christ because I truly believe Jesus Christ is a liberator, one who fights oppressive systems. Um, In fact, in the Bible, it says our our battle is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. To me, that so clearly means patriarchy, white supremacy, other systems that function in our society to harm others. So my battle is not against so-and-so or so-and-so. It's against these systems. As a feminist, I don't hate men. I hate patriarchy. And I will fight to it for my, you know, fight against it to my dying day. And so I felt like what God was calling me to do was wash my hands, be clean, and hopefully educate other Christians about what I have learned, that these gender roles are not good. They are not holy. They have been causing and priming the ground for abuse and violence against women for a very long time. And it's time that it stopped. How do you respond to people who say that movements like this is an attack on masculinity and that without this kind of structure, there kind of goes the idea of manhood and masculinity? So what do you say to to responses like that? Yeah, I have so much to say to that. First of all, (laughs) people are basing, so there's actually researchers who study masculinity scripts, right? And so um, there's a a researcher, his name is Joe Ehrman. He's a former NFL player, but he says in the United States, the masculinity script that men are given is they need to be physically strong, like macho, lots of muscles. Second, they need to have, make money. And thirdly, they need to be, have a a good sexual prowess. So like it notches in their belt. 
So that is kind of the script that you're seeing within society. I feel like what we're seeing in church is still pretty similar because what I was taught for the masculinity script in church was um, men were supposed to be the protector, provider, and pursuer. Right. And which sounds nice until you think about it, because if men are the protector, okay, they're supposed to be protecting women. Who do women need protection from? Mm, it's other men. <laughs> you know, like you, your efforts would best be spent uh, addressing the fact that there are a lot of predators in this space. And so, how do you address this? Okay, so first of all, we talk about protector. And if men are protector, what does that leave women? vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So if you are having a script mm -hmm. that I'm not supposed to protect myself, you are leaving me vulnerable to men like you who think you need to protect me. Okay. Secondly, pursuer mm -hmm. or sorry, provider. If men are the provider, what are women? Recipients, passive recipients dependent on men. So that's also kind of messed up because <laughs> First of all, this is why we get like men who feel so fragile about women earning money or a lot of people saying that women's place is in the home and not in the workforce. Mm -hmm. Well, that also yeah. leaves them vulnerable if they're only dependent upon you. And then the pursuer, mm -hmm. like if we talk about if men are the pursuer, what are women? Again, passive receivers to life, not able to go after the things they want, but have to be pursued and chosen by a man and then he and then their job is to serve him and his desires and, and his, his goals, goals yeah. and so we need to talk about okay that's just kind of messed up let's think about it but first of all let's back up what do all of these um ideas say men in control women have no power that is the whole system yeah. if he's the provider the pursuer and the protector that the woman is vulnerable in every situation and has no power, no agency, and is supposed to be dependent on men. This is all a ploy for power. And again, if we talk about what actually causes sexual assault, this is studied, it's power differentials. So this is not a helpful or good or kind or just system. This is a system that exploits women, that makes them vulnerable to men. And I'm not saying that every woman in the system is gonna be harmed. Some women mm -hmm. are part of the system and they're happy. And that's great. And I'm really glad mm -hmm. that there's a few women like that. But for most of us, legitimately most of us, this system is harmful. It leads us vulnerable to mm -hmm. sexual assault. And <laughs> the reason there's sexual assault in the first place is because the idea that you're entitled and have all the power and control. And if I say no to your power, deserve I deserve punishment. punishment. Mm -hmm. And I will say that as I've spoken up, I get so much hate from men. I had a message from mm -hmm. a man on the email who told me, first of all, that I needed to repent because um, I wrote an article um, about how power differentials contribute to abuse. And he said mm -hmm. that, first of all, I need to repent to Christ because with my last breath, I'm definitely going to hell. And then he continued by saying, if I haven't been raped, then that is a severe injustice. So he was using the name of Christ to wow. say that I should be raped. And he also said, based on my face, he could tell I was a whore. Wow. He was, he just proved my point. And I get messages like, I wish this wasn't part of my work, but I get messages from, I just got more, I got a troll yesterday who went through like all of my pictures and said really terrible sexist things and said, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's fragile masculinity. It's a woman not being in her place. And so you feel that you have to put her back in her place with violence, which is entirely my whole point. Exactly. That's entirely my whole point. You are serving to show that because I am not sitting in my place, that you are allowed to be violent towards me with your words. And heaven forbid, I actually met these men. I don't know how mm -hmm. they would act. But this is my whole point. These power mm -hmm. differentials are, they're nasty and they provide, they just, men feel justified and entitled to punish women who, who step outside these bounds. And this is not just in the church. So I don't know if you remember, but in 2012, there was this horrible gang rape in India on a public bus that made national news. And I think it was 2012, 2013. Mm -hmm. And I was in India or around that, that case really hit home because I think I had just gone to India or was, mm -hmm. it, it, it really resonated with me for some reason. Mm -hmm. And this woman, what happened, she went to a movie with a friend. She was going to college, you know, studying um, in school. And 
like was leaving and this like these men who were strangers before beat her she was with a male friend beat her male friend unconscious and raped her to death and on a public bus like the bus is just like okay this is fine i guess like it was so gruesome it made international news it made a lot of um movements against sexual violence in india which again that, that's a huge huge issue there and we can also we'll get into that and so they interviewed the rapist they said why did you do this why did you rape this woman to death and you know what they said because she wasn't a good girl she should have been at home doing dishes serving men but because she was out at night she deserved this and it was my job to show her what she deserved so again this idea women stay home be mm -hmm. keep the home tidy be modest whatever um and mm -hmm. if you don't i'm entitled to rape you to death this is literally the gender rules i'm talking about and and a woman her name is um i'm gonna mess it up i'm not good at speaking hindi names but i think it's Mon montat mita pandi and i did do a poor mm -hmm. job with that i'm gonna um but she's a mm -hmm. researcher and she, um, for her doctoral thesis, interviewed hundreds of rapists in India and those who like were convicted and actually admitted that they did it because here in the United States, you'd be really hard pressed to get anyone to admit that they raped anyone. But these men were, mm -hmm. you know, the few men that would admit that they were rape rapists. Mm -hmm. And what she found is that these men were all following this gender script that they felt entitled to a woman's body and she said this is not these are not people who are just one-off cases this is a part of our cultural society these men are saying uh, due to that the gender scripts that women need to be in the home that they're entitled to rape other women who don't who don't follow those mm -hmm. and so this is researched mm -hmm. in india but also here in the united states there's a researcher his name is jackson katz and he studies sexual violence as well and one of the things he says is rapists aren't crawling out of the swamp they're being produced by our culture and if we look at the studies and this and i i think these numbers are actually quite a bit higher but this is what the numbers that we have that one in three women is the survivor of assault one in three okay that's a really high number between one in five and one in six are the survivor of rape or attempted rape that is crazy high numbers and so often yeah. we talk about these numbers and i don't think we understand the significance of what they mean first of all like i said i think these numbers are higher because it's really hard for survivors to come forward because we see the way they're treated but if, if one in three women is the survivor of assault we have to ask the question how many men are assaulting is this just one guy running around assaulting one third of all women? No. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't make the argument that it's one third of all men. I don't know because no one studies mm -hmm. it. No one asks the questions and men often deflect or, or say they didn't do such a thing. But I wouldn't be surprised if it's one fourth of all men, maybe one fifth. And if, if, if that's the case, why are there so many? Why are there so many men? That are, are causing this violence and if let's look at our justice system right now like i think it needs a lot of reform and i'm i don't i'm kind of reevaluating what i i think about jail to begin with but if we're using the current context of what we have where we see tons of people of color specifically who are in jail for marijuana which is ridiculous shouldn't happen you know there was a story of a woman who, who she thought she um, was registered in the county, I guess, but was registered in a different county and, and voted illegally in Texas. And she didn't know it, but she was sentenced to eight years. Okay, so let's, let's juxtapose that. So the racism there, that it's a woman that she accidentally voted where she shouldn't have, mm -hmm. serving eight years or all of the people of color who are serving time in jail for marijuana. But let's mm -hmm. juxtapose this with the crime of rape or sexual assault. Only five in 1,000, five in 1,000 mm -hmm. rapists face jail time. Okay, five in 1,000. That is insane. That is a statistic here in the United States. What's more, the, on the rare chance that a rapist is actually convicted and faces jail time for his crime. That time is usually between a couple of weeks and six months. So let's take the example of the rape of 
Chanel Miller by Brock Turner. He was a Stanford swimmer. This made international headlines. Mm -hmm. Two people witnessed the rape and pulled him off of her. She was completely unconscious. Pulled this man off of her, chased him down. Witnesses, like you can't have a better case, right? Like in terms of prosecution, you cannot have a better case than that, that there was witnesses that they actually had to physically pull her off or pull him off this, this unconscious woman. And he spent three months in jail. And that's like best case scenario. So I think we really need to challenge. I mean, I think our justice system needs a lot of reform to begin with. And so I'm not necessarily saying I want more men in jail, but I, what I am saying is that our justice system doesn't protect survivors. It's not about justice that women are not believed and women don't come forward because they're not believed. And I know, I know a lot of rape survivors. I know a lot of sexual assault survivors. I don't know any of them who have felt like they can take their case or prosecute the, the person who did that to them. Likewise. Um, because there's not resources for that. They're not believed. And it's just going to reawaken layers and layers and layers and layers of trauma. And so what I am saying is that we live in a society that doesn't believe women, that doesn't value women, and that doesn't take sexual violence seriously. And I think we do need to take it seriously. And I don't necessarily have the answers of how we take that seriously, mm -hmm. but it's so clear to me that there are no repercussions. Men are not afraid to rape because there's not any repercussions. They're not, they're going to pour their, pull their poor victim through the ringer. So mm -hmm. much trauma. And even then after, you know, with the case of Chanel Miller and Brock Turner, like she was in court cases, reliving her trauma having her name attacked and dragged through the mud, having her sexual mm -hmm. history brought up for years and mm -hmm. three months. And so I just think we need to really address that. And I think we need to have a conversation. You know, if, if the church says they care about sexual violence, if they say they care about human trafficking, well, then you really need to address the really harmful power differentials that you're preaching from the pulpit because this is absolutely studied what is contributing to it and so that is my hope is that I can get the church to stop I I, I mean a lot of men don't listen to me and they vilify me and they attack me and subject me to violent words my hope is that I can get to the women and I can at least get the women to stop being complicit in the system. You don't mm -hmm. have to submit. Your submission, your silence, that's not helping you. This is mm -hmm. only serving to embolden and prop up an extremely dangerous and, and disgusting system of patriarchy. And so my hope is for those listening, if you're a woman, don't submit, don't be silent. Don't, don't do that anymore because that's just further perpetuating good this, this nasty system of patriarchy. And I do hope men, um, I, and I shouldn't say all men attack me. I have, I've changed the mind of at least three mm. men who have let me know. <laughs> so I will take those three, three. men. I mean, it down to three more. guys. Yeah. Three guys who were complementarian, who believe that women should be submissive, who changed their mind. And mm -hmm. I believe that men, more people can change their mind. But uh, that's my hope is that uh, that we look at the systems of the, the, to use the Bible's terms, the principalities and powers that are in our society that are causing harm to, to people and, and uh, do better. Thank you so much, Megan. And yeah. I really do appreciate you explaining all of the amazing work that you're doing and the problems that you're trying to tackle. I think what's really special about what you're doing is forcing the church not only to have conversations, but to see what are the next actionable steps that they can take. Because it's more, I feel like a lot of times when we have such big issues, we always kind of like throw around the words, let's have a conversation, but talk can only do so much. Mm -hmm. Now, what do we do in terms of actions? And what kind of advice would you give to someone like the three men that you were talking about and they want to make that change? What are practical, actionable steps that they can take? to actually make change? Yeah. So my answer would 
um, be different for men versus women, because I think when you hold power in a, a harmful system, it's different than when you don't hold power in a harmful system. So like for me, I'm going to just quickly use the analogy of me being complicit in racism and me as a white woman holding power over people. So what did it look like mm -hmm. for me? Because I think this is a really good analogy. And I think specifically if um, for white folks, we also, you know, if you're white and man, you need to have these conversations on a, on a double level. But for me as a white mm -hmm. woman, first of all, I needed to educate myself. That was my first step. So maybe I'm realizing, oh goodness, I am complicit in this harmful system. That's step number one is realizing there's a problem. And let's look at the United States. There is a problem. There is a huge problem um, when it comes to racism and white supremacy in the United States. Um, this, this most recent attack on uh, critical race theory is a, is a great example of this, is, is yeah. white fragility in action. But what I heard from anti-racist educators, step one, educate yourself. So I have made it a concentra concentrated, concerted, <laughs> um, concerted effort over the last about two, it's been about two and a half years now, where mm -hmm. I try to le read um, uh, at least like five to six anti-racist books each month. And not even just anti-racist books, but books from people of color. So like, Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think white folks can come to the table and think that even if they're an anti-racist educator, that's all they have to offer, but there's so much more depth there, right? There's mm -hmm. so much more, there's, we, black people are not a monolith and there's so much good art coming out. So I do read mm -hmm. anti-racist books. There's a few that I've gone through is Me and White Supremacy by Layla Afsad, um, uh, which has actionable steps, which has been really good. Another one that I have loved is Cast by Elizabeth Wilkerson. I've read The Warmth of Other Sons. I've read James Baldwin. Um, I've been reading like The Hate You Give, which is like, it, it's a fiction novel. Just Mercy. There's so many resources out there. And so if you're a man in this situation what's step number one I think it's reading women it, I think it's reading books specifically about feminism but I also think it's reading just women's words and what they've written because again this is the publishing industry is very male dominated but specifically white male dominated mm -hmm. um, so I think number one is educating yourself and so um, the next step as as I've been trying to be and of course I can't assign the term ally to myself that's a term that can only be assigned to me by black folks but another thing that I've uh, taken as my friend Faith B to be a co-conspirator is I've been elevating those voices and so Mm -hmm. I don't just read those books. I tell everyone about those books. I buy those books for my friends. Mm -hmm. I encourage people to read those books so that they can bring their um, education first. I vote differently. I vote mm -hmm. as if, you know, like a, a lot of, I think sometimes specifically in the church, everyone is told to vote Republican, which I could, we could get into <laughs> politics later, but especially now if we're looking at the party my goodness they're trying to cancel critical race theory they're you know they're trying to put kids in cages they're hurting women too like they're really just hurting anyone that's not a white man or a wealthy person but i think mm -hmm. we need to change the way our vote vote not just for you vote for for those who are on the margins use your vote on behalf of other people that's another step and so i'd say the same thing to men don't vote for sexual predators don't vote for men who brag about sexual assault that's not mm -hmm. cool and another thing that i'm doing is showing up at like marches i show up at black lives matters marches something that i haven't done this year but i'm working to do this year is attending local community meetings so a lot of politics are decided I'm here in your communities. Like there are so many decisions that we can be part of in our local communities that we're not being, because first of all, we're not educated about it. We don't know what's happening, but those mm -hmm. community meetings are posted. And so show up at those community meetings and, and fight for those on the margins, mm -hmm. um, get involved and then support for me, I'm supporting educators, anti-racist educators. So I donate to the monthly. So if you're a man, I'm going to say the same thing to you. <laughs> donate to women yeah. and uh, probably specifically women of color. And there's those are all actionable steps. And there's, there's still even more that you can do there. So for me, another thing that my husband and I are doing is we seek out Black businesses to support. And so tomorrow, no, today is Juneteenth. And so a big, um, there's not a lot of, I live in Athens, Georgia. There's like 
three, no, there's four black owned restaurants. And a lot of them, and I appreciate it, are like taking off the summer because that sounds nice and I get it. But so we did all of our research with it. There's one, there's one that's open. And so we tried to call them last night and order from them, but they were closing in 10 minutes. We're like, we don't want them to have extra work until like at lunch when we're ready to call food. And so make the concerted effort to buy from yeah. women, women-owned businesses. Mm-hmm. Again, if we look at the businesses in the United States, another source of power is they're white men dominated. So find mm-hmm. women and people of color to support in their business adventure or ventures. We just bought a house, or sorry, sold a house. And again, we were like, we could just go with a white man because there's a bajillion of them in real estate, but we're going to find a black woman because that's what mm-hmm. we believe in supporting. And that's how we want. And so I think it's just asking mm-hmm. questions like that and continuing to do the work. So keep reading those books, keep on finding small ways to support them, keep amplifying the others, the voice. And that's how I'm doing it. And like, what I want to mm-hmm. say is from a position of humility, I get what it's like to be, the, I have hurt people. I have been part of a system that hurt people for my own benefit as a white woman. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So I understand men who are, who are becoming aware of a system that they've been complicit in that hurt women. So I know that it can be hard. Um, I know that it can be challenging. I know that sometimes you feel like the worst person who's ever walked, I understand those emotions, um, but we mm-hmm. need to push through them because we are part of making this world a better place. And so when people ask me, how do I make a difference? That's how, is we look at our bloody hands, we educate ourselves, we, and then we vote and use our actions and our money and everything to support those people who are on the margins and, and, and fight for a more justice, just and equal world. But if you're a woman, I think sometimes a lot of us are like, oh no, I, I realize that I, you know, for me, this realization that I've been complicit in a system that harmed me, um, mm-hmm. I think you're going to need a lot of support. And I think, um, I can't speak as if I'm a person of color, but I'm not, but I, I, I think as a, as a woman, you need to find other women to support you before you speak yeah. up. And that support is essential because you're going to get a lot of pushback. And so while I say to like men, like just like dive in and educate and all that stuff, but as a woman, you know what it's like, and it's really important yeah. to get a support system. And so I'd say find that support system mm-hmm. and, and then start speaking up and using your voice. Cause that's essential. Mm-hmm. But so I'd say number one, stop being complicit in a, a system that objectifies you and harms you. Number two, find a support system, friends, family, even it's so sad because what we're finding and what I get messages about all the time is oftentimes it's family who's the most against you when you become a feminist. Like that happened to me. Like my family was so disappointed in me. I lost friends. And that's why I think it's so important to find that support system, even if it's online, find Mm -hmm. an educator online. A lot of them will have Facebook groups. You can find a community. And so I really encourage you to first find a community. And then once you have that community, take self-care practices and begin using your voice and advocating for yourself. But I really do want to emphasize that support that's needed when you're a person on the margins that is fighting for your life and your rights. So. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great advice. And if there's one thing I could add, keep pushing through and stand by your convictions as much as you possibly can, as tough as it might be, but just understand that the next generation is waiting for you to actually take that stance. Mm -hmm. And I am honestly so proud and so thankful that you decided to come on here and share your experiences and all of the great work that you're doing and to help raise awareness for something that unfortunately has been around since the beginning of time. Mm -hmm. But hopefully as we do the work, it will start to, we'll start to dismantle this and it will become less and less and less. So thank you so much, Megan. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. So do me one favor because we have two more things to do. Mm -hmm. First one being, can you tell the audience where they can find you if they want to find out more about all of the awesome work that you're doing? Yeah, you can find me at Megan Chance, which is, it's tough to spell, but I'm sure it's in the show notes, (laughs) but it's Mm -hmm. M-E-G-H-A-N-T-S-C-H-A-N-Z. It will be there. And that's my website is also Megan Chance. And I would love if you could please order my book, Women Rising, um, Learning to Listen, Reclaiming Our Voice. It's everywhere books are sold except Target. I looked at, it's not at Target. So (laughs) (laughs) 
you go to like Barnes, yeah, if you go to like Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or Amazon Bookshop, it should it should be there. Um, and that would mean so to me, so much to me. I have a what publishers consider a smaller platform, mm -hmm. um, and so the more you purchase the book, the more that people will listen, and the more we can confront these systems. And then if you do um, end up buying the book, please leave a review. I do get haters. I've shared about a few of them. Mm -hmm. um, so your your review really helps me out because uh, I do get haters. And I also have a podcast called Faith and Feminism. So if you're specifically looking for these intersections on faith and feminism, I cover everything from purity culture to sex to uh, pelvic health to anti-racism to pornography. Like we talk about it all. It's all there. So um, if you go to Faith and Feminism, we just hit 200,000 downloads. So you can check me out there. Nice. Yeah. Congrats. That's Thank so you. awesome. So yeah, guys, please make sure that you follow Megan. And so for the last thing that we're going to do, mm -hmm. it's an exercise that I have all my guests do. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. Okay. And imagine yourself in a place or a space where you feel the most at peace. It could be anywhere in the world with anybody you want. And in this space, you're sipping your favorite beverage. For me, it's tea, but for you, it could be whatever you like. Mm -hmm. And as you're there, you're so thankful for how far you've come and everything that you've been to because now you're in a space of absolute gratitude. What would be a quote, a scripture, a song that can encapsulate that feeling for you? Yeah, this is something I have to keep coming back to. And I think, I think I hope it's helpful to other people, but I'm right where I should be. I think a lot of times we as people feel like we're behind. We feel like, oh, we're not as far as we should be. Whether that's like walking through trauma, like, oh, I got triggered again. I, sh I wish I was further along. Or if we have a dream, man, I wish I was further along. You know, I felt like for so long uh, trying to get this book published, I felt like I was behind. And now I have some new goals. And again, I feel like I'm behind. And what I hear God say to me all the time and what I tell myself all the time, and it's so healing, I'm exactly where I should be. I'm right where I should be. And for someone who, you know, I don't know if you talk about the Enneagram at all, I'm a seven and sevens really have hard time being present. We have a hard time not looking towards the future. We always are working for that next goal. And so for me to remind myself, I'm actually exactly where I should be. And I'm grateful. I'm really grateful to be where I am. So I think that's what I would say is I'm exactly where I should be. I love that. It's yeah. It's very, very present um, centered. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I, I haven't taken that test. I heard a lot about it. And so you're like <laughs> the fourth person to tell me. So yeah. I'm definitely going to take the quiz, but mm -hmm. I have a feeling it might be very similar because I also mm -hmm. struggle with always looking in the future or mm -hmm. in the past and never just staying focused on the present. Yeah. So, it's yeah. I mean, there's a couple of types that are like that, but for me specifically, it's like, man, Megan, like I'm the person who's on a vacation mm -hmm. planning my next vacation. Like just yeah. be on vacation. <laughs> it's okay. Like you're on vacation, relax. You don't need to plan your next one. Um, relax. What is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, that's something I talk about with my therapist, but like that is one of the, she constantly has things like this for me to practice. How do I be still, how can I recenter myself and remind myself that I'm where I should be? Because I think when I do struggle with anxiety and stuff, it feels, for me, it feels like I'm behind or that I'm broken or that I should have started earlier or whatever it enough. is. Mm -hmm. You're not good enough, whatever. Um, and so for me, I'm like, I'm where I should be. And I'm actually really proud of where I am. I've worked really hard to be here. I've endured a lot of pain to be here. I'm really proud of who I am and, and I'm where I should be. And so that's something that constantly grounds me and something that I have to say to myself whenever I get anxious, like I'm anxious about something else right now because I have my next goal, right? I published my book, <laughs> I have my next goal. So a new thing to, to, to feel anxious and like I want to be there now. Um, yep. And I'm just like, I'm where I should be. And I have no, you know, I'm where I should be. So I love that. And yeah. not that you need it, but I definitely affirm that you are, doing amazing work and I'm sure I'm not the only person who said that to you oh, so you. definitely please keep at it and thanks again for joining me on TRP Recovery and for the folks listening don't forget to tune in on Instagram to see what the next episode will be and please follow Megan yes thanks thank so you. much Megan thank you for having me absolutely bye
Has the TRP Recovery Podcast blessed you in any way? If so, be a dear and share it with a friend. You can follow us on Instagram, subscribe to our YouTube channel, and also stream all TRP Recovery episodes on Exposure TV Network. You can download the Exposure app on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire Stick. Thank you so much, and I hope to continue to help you cultivate not only a relationship with yourself, but most importantly, God. Thank you, and please continue supporting.